Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 51, Theology Cast 3. Remember that this is an independent podcast. We have no big corporate backer. The only way this podcast exists is because of you, the listener. If you want to support the show, then please consider signing up for the membership program, giving you access to exclusive premium episodes. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. It only costs $4.99 per month for access to the back catalogue and a new episode every two weeks. Special thanks to our latest pioneer, listener Rachel. Thanks, I couldn't do the show without you. In our last episode, we turned to theology. It is an unavoidable feature of New England life, and Rhode Island in particular. Consider for a moment the West Wing Season 4 Episodes 1 and 2, a two-part episode called 20 Hours in America. Now, the West Wing is a television classic, and I'm currently re-watching the whole series again, thanks to the rather brilliant West Wing Weekly podcast. I recently watched 20 Hours in America, which is one of my favourite episodes of television, period. The basis for the episode is that while the president is campaigning in Indiana, three of the cast, Toby, the director of communications, Josh, the deputy chief of staff, and Donna, his assistant, miss the presidential motorcade, and therefore the Air Force One ride back to Washington. What follows is their attempt to get back there, but in the process, they are forced to spend 20 hours outside the political bubble that is Washington, D.C. They have to spend 20 hours in America. While Donna is able to cope with it, Toby and Josh are not. They are consumed by the campaign. At the end of the episode, Donna gives a speech, which I'm just going to play here, because it makes clear the point I'm trying to make. Campaigns aren't about the candidates, no? About the voters. How, how are we going to create jobs? How, how are we going to fix health care? How are we going to make the lights go on? How are we going to protect ourselves? So you want to ask if the plumber knows which direction the pipes run, don't you? Forget the plumber. Don't. We want leadership to sound and to feel like instead of appealing to our, our least expensive, however legitimate desire to feel good about ourselves, don't we want right, leadership? That's it. I can't take it. You started it. I'm not kidding. I have such an impulse to knock your heads together. I can't remember the last time I heard you two talk about anything other than how a campaign was playing in Washington. Kathy needed to take a second job so her dad could be covered by her insurance. She tried to tell you how bad things were for family farmers. You told her we already lost Indiana. You made fun of the fair, but you didn't see they have livestock exhibitions and give prizes for the biggest tomato and the best heirloom apple. They're proud of what they grow. Eight months of transportation, the kindness of six strangers, random conversations with 12 more, and nobody brought up Bartlett versus Richie but you. I'm writing letters on your behalf to the parents of the kids who were killed today. Can I have the table, please? Now, you might be asking, what's the point of that story? Well, one, I like stories. 
And two, it's very easy to be consumed by politics, and forget that most people don't think about it 24-7. It's a trap a lot of historians fall into. The story of history is the story of politics, but that simply isn't true for most people. In Rhode Island, the predominant factor at play here is religion. Most people were far more interested in that than they were in politics. So, while we will eventually return to something resembling a more traditional history, it's worth spending some time in Rhode Island going through the religious history of the colony. In many ways, that is far more revealing about the past. When we left things, Providence had become home to Baptists. Newport was also home to Baptists, but was far more prophesizing than Providence. Portsmouth was home to the Antinominans, whose loose structure was already disintegrating. And then there was Warwick, home of Gorson, very much in a league of its own. Rhode Island became famous for its religious discussions, and the wide variety of sects which had taken root there. It was a great time for Rhode Island, but it could only last about 15 years. Rhode Island had been drawn to its toleration not by mild attitudes, but by an extreme form of Puritanism. The end result may seem to have modern qualities, but the method was anything but. Rhode Island, in its current state, could only exist while the English Civil War was raging, and then, once Charles I was dead, only by the leniency of the liberal Puritans. Cromwell began the process of taking down some of the more extreme Puritan creeds, and the restoration of Charles II saw Rhode Island flung into isolation. England wanted nothing to do with the black sheep of her North American children. Significantly, just before this happened, a new force entered the colony, Quakerism. Quakerism had some similarities with antinominism, such as the focus on inner light that made many of the Rhode Islanders ready converts, very interested in this better organised alternative. The church reached high levels of sophistication with remarkable rapidity. Their insistence on refusing to use oaths was troublesome everywhere else, but in Rhode Island, this was nothing out of the ordinary. By 1670, most leading figures of the colony were Quakers, but it would be unwise to refer to anything even approaching a Quaker party which captured the colony, as some historians have been inclined to do. The rapid shift to Quakerism was a reflection of one of the two underlying and counteracting trends in the colony, the drift towards mysticism, and the drift towards biblical literalism. Antinominism opened the way by suggesting that biblical rules didn't apply to believers. The key factor of Christianity was the personal relationship with God. The next step was to gradually abandon the written texts, and to instead focus upon what one person experienced. We've seen this focus on the individual with Gorton. Quakerism saw the main focus of Christianity 
become the guiding force of the Holy Spirit. This move away from traditional theology, and indeed from education, was troubling to many. The other force at work was biblical literalism. The Biblicists believed that the divine revelations would not be achieved by some process of inner search and abandoning the Bible, but instead by trying to use the Bible, particularly Acts and the Epistles, to try and recreate the practices of early Christians as best they could. There were some other similarities to the Quakers. They did not listen to the beliefs of the educated as gospel, and instead preferred the personal relationship with the Bible. It was an unsophisticated eye that looked upon the text, but it was certainly direct. Just as the mystical elements of Rhode Island were naturally drawn towards Quakerism, the Biblicists were drawn towards the Baptists. The main feature of Baptist theology was the focus upon adult baptism. Infant baptism was not mentioned in the New Testament, so the Biblicists rejected it and became Baptists. Christianity has had, over the past 2,000 years, a history of arguing with itself, and that was what happened in Rhode Island. While the Baptists could agree about baptism itself, there was a wide variety of other issues which caused schisms very quickly. The first of these schisms was over the practice of the laying on of hands, with reference to Hebrews 6.2, which caused a breakaway church led by Thomas Olney. There was a break between predestinarian Baptists, or five principal Baptists, and general Baptists, also called six principal Baptists. There were also conflicts about how lawful oaths were, about how lawful war was, about foot washing, about whether or not there was a need to sing psalms as part of worship. There was an argument in the 1660s about whether or not the Sabbath was the first or last day of the week. I could give you a very short version of the story, but I like stories, so I'm going to give you the long explanation of this debate. While Monday is often translated as the first day of the week, it isn't. Technically, the first day of the week is Sunday. This is why in Judaism, the Sabbath is on a Saturday. God created the world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. The Sabbath is on a Saturday, the seventh day. During the early Christian period, for what are very confused reasons, the Sabbath changed. There are many theories, but one is that it goes back to the Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor. Before he converted to Christianity, he was a worshipper of an eastern sun cult which worshipped Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. This was very popular around the turn of the 4th century. When working out which day was special to worshippers of the sun god, we have to look at the names of the days of the week, and therefore to the Babylonians. Why does a week have seven days? Because Babylonian astronomers could see seven objects moving in the sky. They had a day for the sun and moon, and then five more for each of the planets they could see. Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. 
The planets are named after Roman gods, so are the days of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday, obviously, and then Monday is Moon Day, or in Italian, Lunedi, after the Latin for moon, Luna. Tuesday is Mars, or Moteri in Italian. Wednesday is Mercury, Mercoledi in Italian. Thursday is Jupiter, or Jove, Giovedi in Italian. Friday is Venus, Venerdi in Italian. And Saturday is obviously Saturn. So, since the Babylonians, the first day of the week has been associated with the sun. It made sense that sun worshippers have the first day of the week for their holy day. When Constantine converted, he was used to having Sunday as the holy day rather than Saturday, the traditional Sabbath. A Sunday holy day was more familiar than Saturday, so it seems that Constantine changed the date of the Sabbath to make the day more palatable. This is one of a large number of crossovers between the two religions. Even the days of Christmas, December 25th, was selected because that was the date for the festival day of Sol Invictus. That is, at the very least, one of the theories about why the Sabbath became the first day of the week rather than the last day of the week. Cut to the 1660s and Rhode Island. A Sunday Sabbath had well over a millennium of tradition, but one of the major elements of the Protestant Reformation was refusing all the additions to the faith that had been made by Catholicism, and returning to an earlier version of Christianity. Some factors of this were quite easy to throw off. A great many political leaders, such as Henry VIII of England, enjoyed no longer being responsible to the Pope. Some were more difficult, and not all could stomach the thought that they had been holding the Sabbath on the wrong day. There was a fierce rejection of the notion. It was lunacy to celebrate the Sabbath on a Saturday. If they were going to destroy such a fundamental facet of Christianity, why not just convert to Judaism? The Sabbatarians, as they were called, were accused of deserting Christ in favour of Moses. This was the birth of the Seventh-day Baptist Church. You will not be surprised that this splinter group would splinter even further, but at some point there are diminishing returns on me covering this. The point is that for the Biblicists, the point was to exactly recreate the conditions of the early church, not to get as close as was possible, but to literally get it exactly right. This made every small disagreement as significant as the more fundamental points of doctrine, and made it so that no church could exist for very long before it completely broke apart. It is important though to remember that even though they loved arguing amongst themselves, they did not go as far in that degree as Roger Williams, the founder of Providence, you'll recall from the previous episode, who was so disenchanted with churches that he viewed them all as corrupt and no different from heathen religions. This led him to have a great degree of toleration. The Baptists argued, but at the same time they were all aware that they had many common ideas. They might fight, but they were all Baptists. I want to end this two-episode series 
with a passage from Colonial Rhode Island, a history by Sidney James, which I feel captures everything quite nicely. Quote, If the idea is not pushed too far, it is helpful to see the two broad types of religion that developed in 17th century Rhode Island, biblicist and mystical, as stemming respectively from Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson. From Williams came the determination to purify the church, bringing it into conformity with the divine intent as learned from the revealed word of God, forever completed in the Bible. From Hutchinson came the exciting hope that the Holy Spirit continued to inspire mortals and would supply direction to the devout in their daily life, as well as in their churches. Both these leaders departed from the fellowships they launched, leaving their followers to settle their own affairs. Loss of leadership surely resulted in accentuation of certain traits, a drift towards the humdrum and the narrow-minded among those who reputed divine inspiration, a drift towards spiritual anarchy among the antinominans, until curbed by the personal force of Gorton and the ecclesiastical heavy machinery of the Quakers. Most of the time, no one said or wrote much about the tension between the two sides. Even if it is reasonable to think of two primary forms of religion in early Rhode Island, it would be a mistake to overestimate the clarity of the distinctions between them. There were many Baptists who agreed with Quakers on ministry guided by the Holy Spirit and on the moral evil of war. Church discipline was practiced in similar fashion by the various communions. If most Baptists were slower to admit and quick to expel members, and the Quakers, by contrast, prone to embrace people without drawing sharp lines between an inner circle and the rest, the Sabbatarian Baptists stood somewhere in between. The mystical element read the Bible in much the same way as the Biblicist, and expected to draw from it the pattern of the church as well as an index to the validity of latter-day inspiration. In a larger sense, moreover, the religious groups of the colony were alike in their differences from traditional Christianity. They rejected the heritage of ceremony, learning, and hierarchy. They went well beyond the ordinary Puritan horror of using beauty or magnificence to piety. Following what they believed was scriptural precedent, the Rhode Island Christians did not even sing psalms, and they met in fields or private dwellings. Before the end of the 17th century, they erected only a few meagre buildings, a few small Quaker meeting houses, a Baptist meeting house, and dressing rooms for baptismal ceremonies. They all allowed women to participate in church affairs to an unprecedented extent, the Baptists letting both sexes vote in church meetings, the Gortonians insisting that they, and God, recognised no distinction between the sexes, and the Quakers welcoming some women as ministers, and all as full members for ecclesiastical business until they set up meetings for women alone. The churches around Narragansett Bay were thus much of one mind on many points in their departures from tradition. The departures were not purely radical, however, 
After the early years, the burdens of Christian heritage of learning and elaborate organisation of ecclesiastical authority no longer had to be thrown off, because the Rhode Islanders had left them behind. Solemnity and magnificence in the church were no longer appealing either to mirror and sustain the majesty of the state, or to counterbalance it. Secular authority struggled along on a modest scale, and so did religious. Neither could afford more grandeur. The Rhode Island Christians adjusted their churches to their lives. They ended up with simplicity, plainness, homegrown preachers, detachment from power, and the trappings of power. Altogether, a modest, do-it-yourself style of religion suitable for straightforward people in a society where all worked hard and even the wealthiest were people of modest means by old world standards. End quote. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. To get access to the exclusive premium content, just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. You can also continue the conversation on social media. There are several ways of doing that. Facebook and Twitter are the easiest, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, and at History Jamie. You can also send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The address is the history of podcast at gmail.com. Next time, we'll move away from theology and turn towards the more practical and secular elements of life in Rhode Island. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.